Welcome back to the Shopping Home Network. I'm your host, Don Snicker, and this, of course, is Simone Skye. Hi, everyone. Don, today I hear we've got something really special. You know, I saw it backstage, Simone, and I am really excited for our audience to see it today. Well, let's not keep them waiting any longer. Brittany, come on out. Hi, Don. Hi, Simone. Hi, everyone out there in TV land. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Yep. Brittany's got what's called Christianity in a box. You know, it's, it's a lot bigger than I was expecting. Wow, this is new for us. I know, isn't it exciting? Yes, I love the um, packaging. And talk about love. Wait till you hear what's inside. Brittany, tell us about your box. Thanks, Don. Yes, um, inside this box is a life-altering, all-encompassing, one-size-fits-all answer to everything. Um, in this, we have what every single person on the planet needs for every aspect of life. Every aspect. That's right, Simone. And I love its compact design. Yes. Yes, this, this new design um, makes it to where you can take it anywhere. It's not just for church anymore. You can, you can take it to work or to school or to uncomfortable situations around the dinner table during holidays. Easter. <laughs> Good days, bad days, really, you can take it anywhere. Good days and bad days. Yeah. A one-size-fits-all cure-all. Yes. Now, I want to take a second to let our audience know we only have a limited number of these yes. available. Yes. And our operators are standing by. Mm -hmm. Now, the question on everyone's mind is, Brittany, what does this awesome all-encompassing, life-altering box cost? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you, Don. It's actually free. Whoa, stop the presses. Back up a second. Did I hear you right? She said free. That is correct, yes. Oh, my gosh. Folks, you need to get on the phone right now. These things are going to fly off the shelf. That is the hope. How yes. can it be free? Is the box empty? Well, the tomb was empty. Uh, but actually, the box is, it's very fulfilling. It, 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 it's been known to fill voids, to quench thirst, uh, to, pr to provide rest for the weary. Really, give me a metaphor. It answers everything. <laughs> it sounds like this box actually has it all. That's the idea, yes. <laughs> all right, another question for you. How long does it last? I mean, what's the shelf life of this? Do we, do we need to keep refilling the box? That's another fabulous feature. Actually, um, with this box comes an eternity of assurance. Did I hear you right? 100% guaranteed. Folks, you need to get on the phone right now. This is amazing. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. What's the catch? Catch? Yeah, look, I've been on this show for a long time. Nothing is really for free. I'm guessing pyramid scheme. <laughs> Side effects. No. Hidden no. charges. No. no, actually, there was a price. I knew it. But it's been paid. For the entire lot? Yes, for the lot. <laughs> Amazing. Folks, get on the phone right now. This is unbelievable. They're going to fly. Operators, I'm sorry for what you're about to go through. These are going to fly off the shelf. Wait a second. Wait a second. Here it says, this product will free us from ourselves? I guess that's better understood once you open the box. It also said someone had to die? Uh, Simone, what are you oh, doing? Uh, freaking out is what I'm doing. Okay, well, le let me explain. John, in the fine print, look, it says that box was paid for in blood. Yes, yes, it, it was, and, and, and he... I am not selling stuff bought by dead people. Oh, well... 
Well, you're not. He's alive. So did he die or is he alive? Well, he died and he was buried, but then three days later he rose from the grave. Look, this is all much better explained once you accept the box. Well, mostly explained, kind of. So you just want me to trust you? What proof do you have that this isn't some giant joke? Well, there, there were eyewitnesses, there's testimonies, there's miracles, but y- you're right, it does. It takes a huge leap of faith. You're asking too much. No, he's asking too much, but, but what if it's true? What if it's true? <laughs> All right, then. All right. Wow. Well, you can obviously see how wild people are going over this. We're going to turn it over to Patrick now, who's going to test it out on our audience. <laughs> Patrick! Ah. Ah. Come back. If you've never been with us, you have to realize that every time we do a sketch around here, every single detail matters. Every character is meant to have a connection with something you get. And I get this, that it's Easter, and this room is four, and there's a lot of people in here who are here maybe by way of tradition or who are here because mom and dad won't pay for brunch unless you come. <laughs> and so in a lot of ways, you're like Ashley's character. Um, you're looking around going, are you serious? This is a joke, right? This is a fantasy. This is like we're all in that moment from Hans Christian Andersen's famous play, The Emperor's New Clothes, in which the child yells out, He's naked! Doesn't he realize he's naked? Some of you are looking at us that call Jesus Lord and you go, do you realize that you're naked? It's a fantasy. It's what you might be feeling. And if you're feeling that, you might feel that what I'm about to do in giving a sermon is kind of like this guy. He's a peddler. He's here to sell you a bill of goods. And you might wonder, why am I sitting through this? Oh, I remember, right, brunch, right, got it. But what I'm asking you to consider here in the words that we're about to hear from the Apostle Paul, is that you might actually identify and consider and respect the sort of temperament that's embodied that Dusty played and the character that Dusty played. Because the Apostle Paul, he was the guy that went after the church. And then he became the staunchest advocate for the church. And as Blaise Pascal said, I tend to believe the martyrs who get their throats slit. Well, sure enough, Paul did, but they went the full Monty and took his head off. So you might say he was all in. But in being all in, he was also self-aware enough to realize that this was a wager to believe in Jesus. It's a bet. It's a bet you place. And it's a bet that might be wrong. And it's wrong that sometimes feels like just how absurd it sounds. Even Paul himself said, if in this life we have this hope only, we're to be pitied more than all men. He got it. But he was self-aware enough to know that it's a wager. And it requires a certain humility. But the point that he's going to make in the passage that we're about to look at is pretty much this. Embrace the folly. There's a lot of people that think it is absolutely absurd. And there aren't days in which we who claim Jesus as Lord don't think it's absurd too. But appearances belie the truth of it. And so we're going to listen to what he has to say about embracing the folly in three ways. That you should, why God did, and why you should. 
that you should, why God did, and why you should. That's what we're going to do. If you're able to stand, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. First Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him... You're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. First thing's out to say to us is this, that you should embrace the folly. And I have that in quotation marks. Because he really doesn't think it's folly. He just knows that the world will see it as folly. And the way he makes that point is from the very first verse, from verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is power for those who are being saved. Now we've got to park the car a little bit here on that phrase, the word of the cross. Because I know that you know that you don't have to know a lot about Jesus or of the cross to know that it has a lot to do with sin. How it is aligned and arrayed against sin, against hatred, against injustice, against oppression, against greed. You know, all those things that the church has really excelled at in its history from time to time. He is coming against that. But before it has anything to do with sin, there's something in the background. And in the background of the cross's contribution to our understanding of sin is its contribution to our understanding of this thing called identification. He has come to identify with the people and our condition. The cross, before there was a cross, there was a cradle. And at that cradle was God in the flesh. And for God to do it that way was for God to say to you and to me, I am in this with you. And I'm for you in it. You might have heard that this week, um, the documentary about Mr. Rogers dropped. And I'm going to have to bring my Kleenex when I see it, because I even wept in my 20s on the day that I heard that he died. Anybody ever see an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? 
Yeah, of course you did. Anybody remember Officer Clemens? Yeah, his real name was Francois Clemens. And one interesting tidbit, he was the first black man ever to be a regular appearance on a children's program. But the even greater significance that was not lost on him was that he was playing a police officer, which by his own admission, he was rather apprehensive to do. Because where he grew up, in the era that he grew up, black men and police officers didn't mix well. And here's where I give my prophetic pause for wondering if things might change. But Francois Clemens gladly played Officer Clemens because he knew that he wanted kids to be able to trust those people that Mr. Rogers would say, in times of crisis, go to the helpers. And cops were helpers. And Francois Clemens wanted to show people, show kids, black and white, the cops were helpers. Trust them. But in an episode in 1969... Fred Rogers not only had Francois Clemens tell him about his work, he said, we're going to talk about swimming, and I want to invite you into my pool. (laughs) And so he invites Francois Clemens, Officer Clemens, to sit in that pool with him, to pull up his pant legs, and to stick their feet in the water. Which, folks, you and I think, what's the big deal? And in 1969, that's a big deal. And at the end of that episode, when Mr. Rogers always says into the camera, I like you. I like you just like you are. You know who he was looking at? Francois Clemens. And Francois asked him later, were you looking at me? And Mr. Rogers says, yes. And I think this time you might have heard it. And so in the wake of that episode, Francois Clemens, in his own memory of the moment, said this. The icon Fred Rogers not only was showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends... But as I was getting out of that tub, he was helping me dry my feet. Fred Rogers is saying to Francois and to the world, I am in this with you and I am for you. That's identification. And that is what Jesus is saying to us at his cross. I don't care how you see yourself. I don't care how others see you. I don't care what's even true of you that might be true. I'm in this with you because I'm for you. That's identification. God in the flesh God identifying with a people, God coming for the world that was fractured. That was his gig. And Paul says, you should embrace that folly. But if you're looking for an idea that will be seen as perfect scintillating wisdom in the world, you probably better not look here, because most of the world will just think you are nuts. That you are projecting your deepest desires and fears upon some figure who is enigmatic and finding some sort of enigmatic and mysterious but ultimately fantastical hope in that. And sure enough, there's a cognitive psychologist by the name of Steven Pinker who, besides having awesome hair, (laughs) has a lot to say about the backwardness of having any religious faith. And he said in his most recent book, which I must, be, must have been inspired by that Seinfeld episode, Serenity Now! Serenity Now! His book is called Enlightenment Now. He writes in that book, few sophisticated people today profess a belief in heaven and hell, the literal truth of the Bible, or a God who flouts the laws of physics. To take something on faith means to believe it without good reason. So by definition, a faith in the existence of supernatural entities clashes with reason. If we want to make the world a better place, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves. If you're going to count on God to make the world a better place, 
then you're probably going to make the world a worse place. And he wonders why he's not on no one's Christmas card list. <laughs> I'm not here to debate the merits of his case. Although we might quibble about whether in adopting a religious faith that one is necessarily abandoning reason, I'll just let you listen to me for the next 25 minutes and think I've abandoned reason. We might also quibble with the idea that religious faith has no contribution to the progress of life and that wherever it goes, it's always preventing um, progress and human flourishing. We could, deb- we could debate that, but I am, I am not here to quibble with his position so much as I am here to use him as an example of someone who thinks that we are nuts for doing what we're doing right now. We should all be in bed or at brunch. Everybody has their reasons for thinking it might be folly if they think it's folly. And Paul would be unsurprised to hear Stephen Pinker's claim that he thinks it's folly. Because he himself, if you were listening in the text, rattles off the detractors of his day. Jews, it says... Do I have that slide? I don't remember. Jews... Let me find it. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Jews wanted evidence. They wanted more than just a proclamation that some Jesus had risen from the dead. And they would have found it downright blasphemous to say that God was on a cross. That the Almighty God who brings Israel out of its out of its bondage and into its wilderness and into its promised land would actually become vulnerable and weak like a mere human. Blasphemous, preposterous. Greeks, they did believe in an idea that there was a wisdom sort of woven into the fabric of reality and they called that wisdom logos, which is the Greek word for word. Greeks believed in that, but what they couldn't countenance, what they couldn't stomach, was the idea that the logos, the reality, the wisdom of reality might be actually comprised in a single human, like what the preaching of the cross suggested about Jesus. Everybody had their reasons for thinking it folly. Today, a lot of people have their reasons for thinking it folly. But even those who think it foolish, don't think it wholly foolish. Let me introduce you to another atheist. His name is Elaine de Botton. He's a Brit, writes for a variety of publications, does a website, writes a book about love. Even he sees an inner logic and inner coherence to this idea that we are all born with a corruption that we can't just sort of heal ourselves. A corruption that we would say as Christians is what drove Jesus to his cross. And even when it comes to the context of relationships, this atheist finds an inner logic in believing in that corruption. Listen to what he says. I love the concept of original sin, a phrase you don't typically hear from an atheist. (laughs) The idea that we're all fundamentally broken, fundamentally incomplete, because it seems to be such a useful starting point. You know, if you imagine a relationship in which two people think they're great, you know, perfect, That's going to lead to an intolerance and a terrible disappointment when they realize that they're not great. They're not perfect. Whereas imagine a relationship that begins under the idea that two people are quite broken. And therefore they need forgiveness from the other as they need to apply charity to the other and they need to forgive the other. And that seems a much better starting point. Fine. You think it is foolishness and it is nutso and it is absurd to believe that God came in the flesh and was crucified on a cross. Fine. 
But do you have a better explanation for your own heart, especially in the context of a relationship? Does it explain your world better to say that you are essentially good-natured and that given enough time, you will always do the right thing and the right thing for someone else? Does that best explain your experience? Or does your best experience explain by the idea that there is an inner kind of frailty and confusion, even an inner hostility in your world? Call the cross foolish if you want. But I'll tell you what drove him to his cross. It makes a lot better sense to believe that that explanation holds and is more sound and is wiser than even the wisdom of the world. And sure enough, Paul says as much. For the, wit, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What a bold, bewildering assertion he's making. That's as enigmatic as they come. The foolishness of God, wiser than men. The weakness of God, stronger than men. What? Why do you think that, Paul? He doesn't say yet. The plot thickens. You'll have to stay tuned. Because before he tells us why we, why you should embrace the folly, he first tells us why God embraced this. Why God did it this way. If you watch John Legend tonight as he plays Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar live on NBC, the character who plays Judas is going to sing to Jesus in his face these lines. If you'd come today, you could have changed the whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. And so they're going to ask him, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who in the world, who are you? Why did you sacrifice? It's the question everybody's been asking. Why did God do it that way? Wasn't there a far more effective, efficient way of making his name known? That's what we talk about next. Why did God do it this way? And for Paul to explain why God embraced the folly, he makes this really funky turn. He says in verse 26 about the people that first accepted Jesus, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In other words, he's saying, you people who, ch- who believe in this, you're not exactly red carpet folk. And we say, gee, Paul, sometimes you say the sweetest things. You need to work on your people skills. Why is he throwing shade on people like this, especially the ones that have come to trust in who Jesus is, who have come to embrace the folly. Is he doing that to demean them or to make a point? It's not to demean them. What's his point? Why is he doing it? Before I tell you his point or I explain it, I'm going to give you a picture of it. This guy is named Chris Arnade. He grew up in the church. He left the church after a pastor went postal on him when he asked a question about the church. So he left, gets a PhD in physics, works for 20 years in a Wall Street job, grows disillusioned with all of that, and instead moves to Brooklyn and starts taking pictures of homeless addicts like these. And by his own encounter with those folks, by his own spending time with people, many of whom had embraced this folly, he came to see them as the greatest threat to his own belief in atheism. So much so that he says this 
in a candid moment. They have their faith because what they believe doesn't judge them. Who am I to tell them that what they believe is irrational? I cannot tell them that there is nothing beyond this physical life. It would be cruel and pointless. In these last three years, out from behind my computers, I've been reminded that life is not rational and that everyone makes mistakes, or in biblical terms, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. On the streets, the addicts, with their daily battles and proximity to death, have come to understand this viscerally. Many successful people don't. Their sense of entitlement and emotional distance has numbed their understanding of our fallibility, and soon I saw my atheism for what it is. An intellectual belief most accessible to those who've done well. Which is a humble way of saying his atheism wasn't so much a consequence of him becoming enlightened as it was just a consequence of him learning to be more self-reliant and thinking that that was the way one lived and ought to live. It was those whose lives were frail, who found their hope in this folly that did the most to deconstruct what he thought was an indestructible bulwark against belief. And he began to see himself like they saw themselves, as broken. That's a picture of what Paul is talking about here. But the point that Paul is making about why God embraced the folly this way is what he says there in verse 26. Thanks. For consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no one would boast in the presence of God. So that no one would boast in the presence of God, which means this. God brings rescue to the world by entering into vulnerableness for the people for whom He has come. And He brings people unto Himself just by appealing to those who have no reputation, who have no resume, who will not be inducted into Phi Beta Kappa anytime soon. Why? So that the world would know that it is not your pedigree that esteems you with the Lord. That the only thing that can bring you into His esteem and His favor is His grace. That you would know that He alone is Lord. And for those of you who are as more unfamiliar with theology on that regard, you might hear that and go, wow, God is the ultimate narcissist. He just wants the world to know that he is God. There are inferiority complexes, and then there are inferiority complexes, you might think. And if you think that, you would be wrong. Because the reason why God embraced the folly here overlaps with why Paul says you and I should embrace that folly. Why should you and I embrace that folly? It's my last point. And I'm going to get a little help from a very unlikely source. Last month, she and Warren Beatty tried to redeem the fiasco that happened at the Oscars a year ago. But 31 years ago, she just won the Oscar for Best Actress in the Film Network. And the day after she won the Oscar, Faye Dunaway looked like this.
Beverly Hills Hotel, the day after she won, staring at the Oscar, with all of these papers just sort of regaling her for her accomplishment, all strewn about her. And the look on her face is not a post-Oscar award stupor. There's something rather melancholy upon it, I would say. And I think that picture, taken by the guy that would eventually become her husband, is a metaphor. She's looking at that thing for which she worked so hard and which she must feel so much affirmation knowing that the collective accolade of her peers allowed her to get to that. And she's looking at that like, I think the Yiddish word is meh. (laughs) The payoff was a bit underwhelming. All that she labored for might think, wow, was it really worth it? Paul says that you and I should embrace the folly because it has something to do with what he calls finding your boast. And boast is a biblical term that runs from cover to cover, but it's this idea of where you find your deepest sense of identity and worth and value, or in a biblical term, your glory. Where do you find it? That's what you boast in. And Paul is saying that there is both a deception and a danger in finding your boast in anything but knowing the Lord. Darcy Steinke grew up in a family where the father was a Lutheran pastor. Her mother suffered from crippling mental illness. And she wrote a memoir a few years ago called Easter Everywhere, in which she talks about being reared in the faith and then losing her faith and then rediscovering a version of the faith in Jesus. And she tells a moment in her pilgrimage in which she's waiting at a bar one night for a boyfriend that she's been living with for a very long time for whom she would hope it becomes a lifelong relationship. And while she's waiting for him, he shows up. And something happens in very short order which confirms to her in that moment that they have no future together. And in her distress... She gets up from the table, she runs to the bathroom, she locks the door, she sits down on the floor in a stall and weeps. And as she recounts that moment there in the bathroom, she recalls something that a French Catholic writer of the 20th century named Simone Weil said about God. She remembers Simone Weil saying this, One has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God... One is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such, but in fact, though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. It's a complicated sentence. What she means is this. If you refuse to believe in God, fine. But you will find some substitute for God. And though you think you will just think of those things as things, inevitably you will ascribe to them a kind of divinity that they do not possess. And in that, you are deceived. Whether it's your job, a relationship, a marriage, your philanthropy, your activism, your writing in intersectionality, any of that. If you think God is not God and there is no God, you are liable to ascribing to that thing a divinity it does not possess. 
Paul is here to say this. Why should you and I embrace the folly? Because not only is there a message of redemption in it, there is a power to be rescued from the self-deception of thinking that there is divinity in something when there is no divinity in any of that. That's one reason why you embrace the folly. To be rescued from that self-deception. But more importantly, you and I should embrace the folly because you will not find a greater, sterner, more extraordinary love elsewhere. Any of you see a few years ago the one, the movie that won Best Picture, Birdman? Anybody see that? A few of you? Michael Keaton? In the opening credits of Birdman, there's a poem by a guy named Raymond Carver called Late Fragment, which goes like this. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. Six lines that capture, I think, the whole of what we are all aiming for in this life. And in the last verse of this passage, you will have heard Paul say this. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In those few words, Paul is giving us not only the greatest reason why we should embrace the folly, but the greatest reason why you could believe and feel beloved on the earth. When he uses those big religious words like our righteousness, that Jesus is our righteousness, all he's talking about there is believing that you are accepted by God and delighted in by him. When he talks about Jesus being our sanctification, he's just talking about the means by which you and I flourish and are refined and are made new. And when he's talking about what it means for us to be redeemed, that our redemption is him, he's talking about our liberation. A liberation from an enslavement that we really can't put our finger on. And I could spend several minutes unpacking each of those three words. I think I'd rather show you pictures of them. One of which you heard me say last week, if you were here. They buried him on Wednesday in a state funeral. Showed up by no less than the Prime Minister of France. But Arnaud Beltoin was a policeman who in the midst of a hostage negotiation with an assailant who had a woman as a human shield, Arnaud Beltram offered himself and said, me for her, me for her. And he lets it happen, the assailant. And Arnaud Beltram goes in, and the woman is freed. In the midst of the shootout to free him, he dies in the gun battle. And he was buried on Wednesday at a state funeral. She was that man's hostage. And Arnaud Beltram gave himself that she might be freed as a hostage. Folks, Easter is everywhere. Easter is everywhere. And this man, if you read his story this week, had embraced this folly. And only he and God knows to what extent it was informing his moment to go in and act as a willing participant in a hostage situation. He was her redemption price, and he paid for it with his blood. But a little closer to home, Four hours from here, in Cumberland, I'll tell you a brief story. There's a sergeant by the name of Joe Cerna. 
Spent several years in Iraq. Decorated officer. Came home. Found life in America far more difficult than he imagined. Suffered from PTSD. Becomes embroiled in alcoholism. Commits 25 different offenses for whom he must uh, appear before a judge 25 different times. But in his 25th court appearance, he shows up before a judge by the name of Lou Oliveira, judge of the 12th district. And on that day, Lou Oliveira, who was also an Iraq war vet, heard the case and sentenced Sergeant Joe Cerna to one day in prison for his offense. And on the day that Cerna would appear and serve his day, guess who picked him up? Judge Oliveira. He drove him to the prison. He walked with him to the cell. And Lou Oliveira notices that Sergeant Cerna is beginning to shake because he's off his alcohol and the PTSD is having its full run and he's quaking as he steps into that cell. You know what Judge Lou Oliveira does? He steps into the cell with him and sits down beside him and tells the guard to close the gate behind him. And on that day, Sergeant Joe Cerna served his day with Judge Lou Oliveira sitting with him the whole day and night. Easter everywhere. Lou knew the law. He also knew the frailty and fallenness of that sergeant. And in that moment, he satisfied what the law required by binding himself to the one who was responsible and accountable to the law. Folks, that's the gospel. Folks, that's the righteousness. Folks, that's the acceptance. That's the gospel. And that's the clearest picture of mercy, of love, and of beauty. Which is why we asked you to go to all that trouble to bring those flowers to the door in that cross. Because the cross in and of itself is as vile and grotesque an image as you could imagine. But depending on what happened on that cross and who hung on that cross, it bespeaks a beauty without parallel. It is the clearest reason why you and I should embrace this folly and the clearest reason why you might feel beloved on the earth. It's Fred Rogers who said, love is the root of everything. All learning, all relationships. Love or the lack of it. You can either spend your life trying to buy your way into gaining love or you can believe that you were bought with a price in an act of love. And on two occasions in this same letter that Paul was writing to that church at Corinth, he says this, you were bought with a price. And that is why you may feel beloved on the earth. And for those of you who are visiting us today, you may think, man, you Christians are really fixated on feeling like you're loved. (laughs) And I get that. But it's not mainly just to know that you're loved. There's a lot of students in this country who've been walking in hope of change in this country. I hope the world does change. I hope the world changes for the better. But I'll tell you this, what change you seek, you know what's even more important than the change you seek? The manner in which you seek it. And the question I would ask for anyone, young or old, if you would change this world for the better, where will you find the humility to listen to voices outside your camp? Where will you find the humility 
to make sure that in your indignation about the need for change, that you will not inject yourself into becoming a self-righteous indignation. Where will you find that humility? You will find it at the cross because it is the cross that silences any possibility of being self-righteous. Where will you find your humility? Where will you find enough courage to be able to speak and act in a way that makes you unpopular in everybody's stripes? At the cross, you will find the courage because at that cross, it is a promise of love that does not change even when you can find love nowhere else. Where will you find that courage? And where will you find resilience? The resilience to persevere in that effort to see change even when you fail at it, even when everybody meets you with resistance in it. Where will you find the resilience? You will find the resilience there. Because at that place, at that cross, you will find a hope that will not change and that will not be besmirched even with time. You want to change the world? Fantastic. But you're going to have to find the humility and the courage and the perseverance somewhere. And I am encouraging you this day to find it there. Even if you think it's folly. Yeah, on days, it sounds utterly absurd. But I ask you the question in the same way that the sketch asked you the question. What if it's true? 